so I was thinking about how to start. Yeah. And I thought the most interesting thing that I cut to the chase for people is that I'm sitting here with Christopher Knoxon, who has been a guest on the Colbert Report. <laughs> God. Yeah, my, my 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately, people go, okay, I know that level of importance. You don't just get to be a guest on the Colbert Rapport for nothing. I mean, yes, it was super cool. <laughs> it was very exciting. And I had just written a book. I had been a journalist for a long time and wrote a book about what it means to be an adult mm-hmm. and why so many of us act so much more like kids than traditional capital day A adults. Yeah. It was called Rejuvenile. and um, It's a great title. Yeah, it was a, it was a really intense, exciting. Um, I got you know I got to go on Colbert. I got to go on the Today Show on the same day. Oh my god! Um, What's the behind the, the scene Colbert moment? Well, I mean, the morning I was on the Today Show, and they paired me with this like super awful blonde uh, developmental psychologist because they were afraid <laughs> that I was going to be an egghead. Let's get our, get our staff, you know, expert to come in. And she was awful and didn't know anything about the subject. And I was totally awkward and it was just a disaster. I mean, it just didn't feel good. It wasn't a good pairing. No, it was not a good pairing. And it was also just a a weird, like completely stilted media experience. And then it was live. And, um, and then I did the Colbert and like he, you know, he takes you into the green room and he's himself. He's not, Colbert right, at the time, right. that was weird because all the I knew. Conservative, no, uh, he wasn't in, in, and he was super funny, and we had a beer, and <laughs> wow. we just shot the shit, and yeah. um, at the end of our like just chat, he was like, "Look, um, we're gonna go out." And I'm going to be a complete idiot, and it's your job <laughs> to disabuse me of that. And I realized it's a game. Like he yeah. he does improv, right? Yeah. And like. As soon as I got into that mode, yeah. it was so much fun. It was yeah. just like we were playing. Yeah. And it wasn't like a media experience. It was just like um, playing a game with a really smart uh, make-believe artist. Yeah, wow. Um, so Where, it was fun. Like you're playing a chess game with somebody who's letting you know, letting you in on the kaleidoscopic imaginary mind. Yeah, but not even chess. It was like tag. It was like, <laughs> right, you know, wow. playing tea or something. He's sure. just, he's playing a, he's playing a character and you're just sort of goofing. Yeah. Um, on television. Were so. you surprised at the success? I mean, like, not every book gets a feature on a talk show or even, you know, something even grander than that, like Colbert. I mean, it was my first book. I've written three and, and now uh, illustrated one. And, you know, I, I thought I got a good advance and I thought I was going to be hot shit. I mm-hmm. thought I was going to be like the new Malcolm Gladwell. Like oh, that's, nice. And I wasn't. Like, the, <laughs> as soon as, you know, that was the peak. Like, and the, 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 there was problems with the publishing and like the book, uh, when I was on Colbert, it was not available in stores. So for the next two weeks, if you'd heard of the book and it was all over the place, it was in the Wall Street Journal, it was in the New York Times, it was in Time Magazine, I was on, you know, NPR and the book was not available. Wow. So when they just screwed up, um, you know, marketing and distribution. And in any case, the book didn't sell as most books don't. Uh And you know, ultimately, like I didn't get another deal yeah. from the same publisher, and 
like a lot of, you know, mid-list nonfiction books, it just sort of came and went. Oh, bummer. So, right. And so, and those are the stories that we don't hear that much are like the, the books that almost made it the song that we'll never hear. Like there's some Wilco lyric where it's like the greatest song you ever heard. You'll never get to hear. Right. It's, you won't find it on the radio, you know? Yeah. 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 And like in this case, like this book, it gets this heat and it's the a pinnacle and it's showing so much promise. And then the logistics. Yeah. <laughs> drop yeah. out on it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've now, as I said, I've done three and, the, and, each time there's this moment of this one's going to break. Like oh, this one's yeah. the one that's really going to take off. Yeah. And then it doesn't because, right. you know, publishing is a business where they put out, I think it's sort of like the music business. They yeah. put out a hundred titles for every one that like actually makes its money back. Uh-huh. Um, oh, so right. you get an advance uh-huh. and then at a certain point, it breaks and then you get royalties back. None uh-huh. of my books have I gotten a single royalty. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so gosh. it's just like, it's the way they throw spaghetti against the wall and then they wait to see what sticks and the rest just falls to the ground like limp noodles. All right. So is this, it's very much like the music industry nowadays, just like it's been for, for years, it seems like where so many people striving, uh, it's this um, romantic notion almost of being an author or putting out a novel. The, the practice, Practicality of something like that actually happening is as small as probably all the musicians vying for. Um, yeah, yeah, it's very starting. much like the mu- music business. Is it's, it any way different? Actually, does it, is it favorable, more favorable for authors than well, it would be a musician? Uh, musicians can tour, right? And that's oh, where you make your money. Right. Um, and right. and in the end, like what I ended up doing is I did a lot of consulting and I did speaking engagements, and you know, it's not. I don't regret any of yeah. it. It's all for the good. And the weird thing is that because a book comes out and gets in libraries and is still on Amazon, I still get, you know, interview requests and people who love the book and it oh, gets on great. curricula and different universities and high yeah. schools and stuff. So like the the cool thing about books is that they never die. They're yeah. out there. Right. And there's this long tail of attention and it it, you know, comes back every once in a while and I love it. What's um, the impetus for writing Rejuvenile? I was a new father and I had um, a couple of kids at that time and I was spending a lot of time like playing, you know, Legos and watching Spongebob and I was just a goofball Mm -hmm. and I was um, realizing that my father and that, you know, the adults that I had in my head didn't behave at all like I was behaving and I was like playing with my kids in a way that just felt sort of radical Uh and I looked around and I saw that this was sort of the norm and I realized oh there's a there's something going on here there's like a sociological phenomena that um I can report out and I had been a uh I'd worked for the wire services and worked for newspapers and so I treated it like a you know social phenomena that I could report on and I did um research on the history of adulthood and what maturity actually meant and how adults have changed over the years and why things had shifted so much um so it's what 2007 there's been this boom in talking about ancestral trauma in the last mm. let's say three years is when genetic yeah sure yes you know now people are sort of getting into the karmic aspect of it or the energetic predisposition in its spiritual terminology is you know the shit that grandpa didn't deal with the dad didn't deal with that you're you gonna know, get yeah it also acknowledges that it might be an emotional issue that's being carried 
what did you find in the way of like that was the most promising information about this subject? You know, kids know are, are born knowing things that we unlearn as we grow up. Yes. Right? Kids know how to play. Right. And we forget as we get older we get less good at it. Yes. There's this idea that somehow we're born blank slates and then we, you know, gradually accrue skills. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. actually not true. Wow. We, we come in with stuff that then gets shed. Uh-huh. And I think what's happening is, I think what happened, you know, in the 2000s and continues to this day is like, because everything is so uncertain, we're at a moment of real shift and crisis. Yeah. Um, I think as individuals, we go back to that developmental stage where we knew how to learn. Like, you know, kids can learn languages in a minute, right? Mm-hmm. And as you get older, you lose that capability, that so openness, true. that flexibility, right. that innovation. Yeah. And so I think we're trying to connect with that part of ourselves that can adapt. Yes. Um, kids are way more resilient, way more adaptable, way more imaginative yeah. than adults are. And yeah. so I think that's what we're searching for. Right. On the that's the the good side, you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. The the downside <clears throat> is that there's a difference between childish yeah. and childlike. Uh, and I think it's all to the good to try to be childlike. Yeah. And but to guard against sort of oh, wait, there's a shiny thing. Um, I'm having a temper tantrum and everyone else has to deal with it. I mean, right, right. And paying your bills and being self-sufficient and you know making rational, mature choices. Sure. And still having a great time and being, you know, having, a, having that childlike essence. Yeah. You know, I'm fascinated by this subject. I mean, certainly childhood and and what gets passed on and all of that. But I mean, mainly what I'm fascinated with is the, the situation that you found yourself in where you were radically different than what was offered to you. So you're pulling sort of from nothing. You're pulling from no reference point when doing that. And isn't that, would you say that that's sort of you reaching into this, the childlike bag to play and remembering who you were back then. Is that what's there for your kids in that moment in the availability? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I think that the, my approach with being a dad was to think really deeply and intuitively just about what my, who my kid was and how I could connect with them as individual people yeah. and not be like, I am the dad now and yeah. I am here to teach you things. I mean, uh-huh. it's to connect with the individual spirit that's in your room. But how your- did you learn? I mean, how do you find that? You, it seems like you had an awakening while you're in it and you're like, whoa, this is... I think it was, in some ways, it was sort of the classic story of like, I'm not going to do it like my parents did. Sure. So my my dad was sort of distant and a little removed and um you know my folks got divorced when i was young and he i saw him on sundays and it was like he was checking the box Uh and i felt that yeah really profoundly and i didn't like it um and i thought when i have kids i'm gonna be a different kind of dad yeah and you know, for better or for worse, I was really involved in my kids' lives. <laughs> yes. But, and so, and that's the thing is that most, I think m- most people have that at some point. They have it like the idea of going into parenthood is that I'm going to do it better. This is my opportunity to do it better. I think what most people find though is that that only takes them a certain distance 
right. in the actual interaction and raising of a child. Sure. But that in itself doesn't do it. So when you find yourself in that situation, how is it something that you take care of and cultivate and and strengthen? Like what's a way of strengthening that? Do you go more into your story and healing certain elements from your past? Yeah, I mean, I guess you do have to do your own work. Um, to maintain presence with them, I, right? If you something. don't clear, if you don't clear out your own crap, right. you're going to lay it on your children. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I I did therapy and I worked on myself and I um, tried to keep my side of the street clean-ish. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I fucked them up in all new kind of ways that they'll then you know with their kids. That's the story. Is At, we just the custom. You know, yeah. We just like the the pendulum swings this way and that. They probably think I was too involved. I mean, my kids and I were so close that yeah. when um, they didn't really have tight friendships. I had really close friendships as a kid because uh-huh. my parents were not really available. And yeah. I was, you know, I looked for family outside of the house. Right. Our family was so tight that by the time they went to college, they were kind of lost. Oh, wow. Like they were, they had really tough first years wow. out of the house. Yeah. So, you know, you, you pay for it one way or the other. Right. I mean, I wouldn't trade it. Yeah. Um, and I don't think they would, I think. Yeah. But, um, there are downsides to whatever approach you take. Uh huh. How do you deal with, and this is just, I think most people will be more curious about in the way that I am of like, how do you deal with these themes showing up in your offerings? Like you put out these books and there's these snafus and there's these almosts and then it doesn't, how do you deal with that and move forward and keep putting things out and be inspired? Well, I mean, it's funny because as, as I was talking about the book and I was like, oh, it didn't sell and none of my books have sold. I mean, the thing <laughs> is, obviously, you can't judge your work by how it's received. I'm sorry. Did you say obviously? <laughs> obviously. I mean, I know that. It's, you can't, you it's hard to feel that. It's hard to feel that, but I know it. I mean, yeah. in my best moments, my only objective when I put something out is that someone who I really respect who has no reason to like it. Yes. Loves it. Yes. If, if one person comes to me and says, this meant a ton to me, yeah, then I feel like I've done the job that I set out to do. Okay. Perfect. Hopefully, you know, there'll be more people yeah. <laughs> who have that response. Yeah. Um, Amazing. So, and you know, you, you can't control it. Like mm-hmm. you, you cannot control what happens once something is, done. Right. You, did you have an acting career before this? Because you sound seasoned in disappointment. No, <laughs> no. but I, you know, I was, I've been a creative person my whole life. And yeah. so you where know, did it I begin? Things. Cause we're talking about your author, your books, but you're an incredible artist. I mean, that's me saying it. So take appreciate it, please. That. Yeah. Appreciate that. <laughs> no, well, you're, you're so one of my story, favorites. What, the story is that like I was a journalist and I would go around with my little notebook and I would report out stories. And my, as a kid, I like watch Lou Grant. Rant, mm. And I thought, I know I want to write, but um, I don't want to be alone in a room. I want to be out in the world talking to people. Mm. And I, I got sort of sucked in by the idea of like, change the world through your writing. That's yeah. great. Yep. And I did that for a long time. And then I started writing books and um, I was writing longhand mm-hmm. and uh, 
as I was writing longhand in these notebooks, I was doodling in the margins. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to art school. I don't have any formal training. And when I was working on a, um, a novel, it's called Plus One, but it mm-hmm. was um, after Rejuvenile. Mm-hmm. And I was doodling objects that were in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Each chapter was named after some like metaphorically important thing in uh-huh. the story. You know, the first chapter was called like Dead Man's Shoes, and then it was a rat, and then it was... And I showed it to my agent, and she was like do you have drawings of all these things? And I said, yeah, of course. I've got like hundreds of them. And she's like, well, let's just use those. So the dra- instead of chapter titles, we use these little doodles oh, wow. in the book. And I was like, oh, I can actually like publish drawings. Yeah. The next book is a total departure. Um, it's the third a, book. The third book is yeah. about uh, civil rights and it's about... Um, it's a long story, but basically I after the election of Trump, I was in... Memphis on a tour for Plus One, and mm. it was like three days after the election, and I ended up at the um, Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, mm-hmm. um, and I kind of had a breakdown. I had a total crying fit mm. alone on the sidewalk, standing in front of the Lorraine Hotel where MLK was shot. Yeah, um, and I had this kind of reckoning about this is the story that uh, I needed to sort of guide me through the next four plus years, which yeah. is, you know, these, the, the story of civil rights is um, just incredibly rich yeah. in terms of people standing up to oppression with the biggest hearts and the most determined resolve. Yeah. And I thought these people are still alive. Yeah. I'm a reporter. I'm going to go talk to them and say, what do we do? Yeah. So, and at that point I was drawing a lot. I, w- I had moved on from a little notebook to a bigger notebook. And so I was doing these kind of watercolors that were way more expressive than the little doodles. Mm. And so that book is um, sort of half drawing, half painting, half handwriting. It was like, um, the hope was that it would be like uh, pages from my journal mm-hmm. as I went on this journey to oh, talk to people. So great. Um, Your journals are, they look a lot like that book. Yeah. Sort of illustrated journaling is the practice that almost all of my stuff comes out of. Yeah. That's good that's trouble. That's called good trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, lessons from the civil rights playbook. And that came out, I think uh, two or three years ago. It's anyway, one of my favorite phrases. Yeah. It's John Lewis. I got mm-hmm. to talk to him and, um, what was that like? Amazing. I bet. Amazing. I mean, he's just, you know, he is like a saint. He is an, he's an is. He is. You know what I mean? Um, He just is. Yeah. He's not gone. Yeah. And I was so, you know, grateful that he made some time for me because without him, the book doesn't really work as well. (laughs) Right. And then the book got on, more recently got on a list. There was, uh, it It got banned. It was banned. You got a banned book, buddy. I have a banned book. (laughs) And I would like to say I'm outraged, but I was totally overjoyed. All right. Talk yeah. about that. Yeah. Well, it got it got on a list of banned books in Virginia, um, and the school board there took it off the shelves, mm. and I you know, spoke at a school board meeting and wrote an op-ed and um, got on my high horse. And I mean, it was fascinating because I got lumped in with books about transgender youth, gay kids... Um, and Toni Morrison, Mm. um, you know, it was clearly just books about people that conservative, reactive, fearful, political people knew would energize their base. It was in advance of the Virginia 
gubernatorial election. Yes. It's a totally time-worn political tactic where you, you know, talk about how kids are being groomed by pedophiles and they're learning CRT. And I yeah. guess my book got thrown in because it's about civil rights and right. it's about teaching people. I wasn't even thinking about kids. I was, I wrote it for everybody, but yeah. it turns out teenagers like it a lot. Right. And, and they're trying to erase history. It's so. just a, yeah, creator. Like, yeah, you're right. That thing sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean. I'm going to vote for you because you're going to take care of that thing. And yeah. The, the, the insane thing is I went to these school board hearings on Zoom and I listened to a lot of the parents and their objections were all, and it was seriously like QAnon stuff. It was wow, like, yeah. they're grooming our kids for pedophiles and right. i was like well, so that was the plan all along i know yeah <laughs> yeah you got us it's insane um a couple weeks after there was a minister in virginia who was behind the ban uh-huh. he was the minister for a couple of the school board members who were who were you know trying to to take these books off the shelves he got picked up in a um online pedophile sting he was going after kids oh fuck and there it is. I mean, it just what proje- you detest, you're completely involved in in some way. It, Projection I mean, much? Oh my god! <laughs> in every case, whatever you're rallying against yeah, is usually, some aspect of yourself. Yeah, it's really Found, weird. Oh, it's just it's so poetic when it happens that way. And no offense to the victims. The irony gracious. is, like, I you know that the my book did uh, the best business that it had done since it had been published because of the ban. <laughs> right. you know, they took it out of right. like five high schools and a bunch of elementary schools. Right. So what? No yeah. one was checking it out much anyway. <laughs> but I was all over the news for a couple of weeks. And, you know, had they not heard of the internet? All right. Like, right. No kidding. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it backfires. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the election happened and a Republican who was running for governor who was behind the ban won. Yeah. yeah. So it did what they wanted it to do yeah um right but along the way i sold a bunch of books right right on (laughs) it's a great book and everyone should check it out yeah Yeah. what would you say the most sort of impactful moments of your life have been the the first thought obviously is my kids right like when my kids were born that changed everything yeah did you with your kids feel before they arrived or did you have some sort of lurking notion that there were some people that you had to meet that you hadn't met yet like they're out there and I want to bring them in. The the only sort of mystical revelation that I had with my kids is in the moments after they arrived, yeah. I got a very profound and enduring sense of who those people were. Like I remember when my first son Charlie was born looking into his eyes and seeing this kind of observant, deep soul and saying, Charlie. And, you know, that's who I got and Mm -hmm. that's who he remained. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with Oscar, the same thing with Eliza, different people, you know, infants. Yeah. But something in the way they moved, in the way they looked at me, in the way that we met, um, it was just a flash of recognition and understanding that um i knew who i got right off the bat wow. and i feel like i could fuck them up uh-huh. but they they i was renting <laughs> yes you know what i mean exactly they I are do. who they are that's and right. like 
um, they came in fully loaded. Yeah. Was it always the plan to have three? My wife was very uh, practical and was like, the theory of bundling, let's have them fast. So we yeah. had two pretty quickly within yeah. two years. And then I thought we were done. Yeah. And then uh, she wasn't done. <laughs> so it was a bonus child. You had had the boy and the girl too. We had so the boy was, and the girl yeah. and she was working a lot and I was home. Uh-huh. I was home with the kids. I was writing, but I was really the domestic first responder. Yeah. I was the daddy taking care of shit. Yeah. And how do you I learn like, how to do that? You just Did do it. Did it come natural? I mean, yes, I would say that like I I loved it and I loved my kids and I had help. Like we had a nanny and, you know, I was able to to work, you know, two, three hours a day, which Mm -hmm. was enough to, you know, keep my writing going. Had you sort of resigned yourself to the role of like going the distance with the kids in the way of like being that domestic dad? Yeah. Yeah. and that was the plan? And, and and did the book just kind of jump out of nowhere to pull you into... I, I sort of off-ramped more after Rejuvenile, you know, flared out. Mm-hmm. Like, I spent a couple of years... I freelanced. I did, you know, magazine pieces and stuff. I, I wrote a parenting column for Reuters for a few years. Wow. My primary job was taking care of the kids. Yeah. Um, and when Oscar was born, uh, you know, I got pulled back into that. My wife was... a TV producer and she yeah. was making, she was super busy and yeah. was like uh, off a lot. Yeah. So, you know, it was, that was the deal. Yeah. And it was a good deal. I was privileged to have that time. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, that's what my second book is about. Uh, plus one is about a householding dad who's trying to keep it together. Yeah. And you know, the, the sort of psychosis that is often displayed by dudes who get into that position. Um, and I felt it. And, um, the, the, the challenge of the book was to like, uh, play out all my worst insecurities. Oh, our dogs are having, a, having a blast. We have two Speaking golden of playing doodles. Out insecurities. Yeah. We have two golden doodles. Hey, in take the it house. outside. <laughs> there he goes. He's chasing Billy. And yogurt out the door. I don't think they're going to stay out the door, though. <laughs> so anyway, the plus one was just about how guys misbehave and the insecurities that lead to sort of bad behavior. What's the psychosis um, that you talk about about the domestication of a male like that occurs? Like, give me an example. That's like seven traumas ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it sort of like a, well, there's the role reversal? Yeah, emasculation, emasculation for sure. Uh-huh. Um, I think there's a lot of guys who sort of uh, overcompensate by, you know, I, I remember. Vroom, vroom. Uh, you know, they're, they're either dudes who, you know, take up jujitsu or um, <laughs> skeet shooting or. Um, you know, they, they get hyper masculine because yeah. they are trying to, uh, you know, cover for the fact that most of their day is spent like taking Cheerios out of the car seat. Oh, right, um, right, right. Do something so opposite of the Cheerios yes. in the car seat. Right. Right. That makes um, sense. And then there's guys who, you know, change a diaper and think that they need a, a parade. Right. Like they're like... <laughs> They're just demanding of constant affirmation yeah. for something that's, you know, completely normal. Right, um, right. I was in a sort of heightened version of it, but, like, I used to go to, um, like, premieres and, and uh, uh, award ceremonies and stuff. And yeah. the moment of holding my wife's handbag while she got her picture taken. Right, there you go. I was like... 
Right. I want to die. Uh-huh. I want to die. I'm standing here holding this silk purse, oh my standing gosh. off to the side while everybody's interested in the lady. Yes. And I was like, what about me? Yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> like a little bitch. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, you know, and that's what the book is about. It's just the, like plumbing those sort of areas where dudes just come apart. This idea of conquering your inner bitch through all the things that you're talking about, jujitsu or like, you know, just get out there and shut it up, just shut it up and just, you know, uh, throw muscles at it. And then there's this other one that's like sort of working with that yelling voice, having it soften you a little bit rather than harden you, Mm. you know, going Mm. in another direction that's the road less traveled, certainly. And even if you wanted to go into that territory, there aren't enough books written yet about how to do that. And so it's like men, when they overcompensate, it's like they're they're looking for a mentor, Mm. but they're doing it through like aggression. Right. The aggression is the mentor. Right. Like how to be a man. Yeah. How to be a man. Totally. We we have these weird, deep scripts that are like buried in our subconscious and we like go to the worst answers. Sheryl Sandberg talked about when she got super successful, um, people would ask her whether her husband was okay. Hmm. And she said, when men get super successful, people tell the wife, congratulations. Oh my God. And when women get super successful, they say, are you okay? Which tells you everything you need to know. Oh wow. Right. So women are expected to be totally fine with playing a support role Mm. and guys are, you know, not. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, the, the reality is I was mostly fine. Like yeah. I was a huge fan of my wife's work. Yeah. I didn't resent her success. I was super excited every time she succeeded. Yeah. But like I noticed these sort of currents running around and I thought this is, this is prime material. Yeah. So. Wow. Way to capitalize on that. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, or to, and I don't mean see capitalize sounds so like, well, way to take it, take advantage. There's well, I mean, all I've these always sound like, dirty. The, the, the work that I've done, the creative work I've done is always like come out of some personal well of feeling. That's what it feels like. Um, and I try to find things that, that are in some ways universal yes. that other people are feeling and that I might have something to contribute around. Right. And you and I met at the dog park, yep. which is, you know, where um, sensitive males meet. Of course. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, we hit it off right away. Yep. And I think it was the first week we had started Mystical Cynical. And mm-hmm. it was like, oh, I got this thing. And then and then got you in, into listening to that. I mean, yep. just through passing it Loved off. Loved it. Love it. You know? Well, it was crazy. I mean, I'm sure you have this this situation with a lot of your friends. Like, I hear all your stories on the podcast. Yeah. And then I'm like, hey, uh, yeah. I already know all your business. You don't know any of mine. But it's yeah. this weird gap. It's yeah. a good thing that I'm a good listener because <laughs> I got some catching up to do about you. Yeah. Uh, we became fast friends. Over time, we found out how cross-pollinated our lives had been, knowing a lot of the same people intimately. Yep. Um, The impetus of moving up here was you're coming out of a divorce. Yep. And your oldest son, Charlie, had passed away. Yeah. um, My uh, son, Charlie, the one I was mentioning before, was uh, 20 years old, and it was a year after the divorce. It was December and on um, New Year's Eve day uh, of 2019, I had the I had the three kids for the first time since uh, I split from 
my ex and we took a week long trip to uh, Utah to go skiing. We had gone skiing pretty much every year at some point and he's a great skier. And um, what was he up to at that point? He was a junior at Columbia. I mean, he was a, a you wow. know, of course, um, you know, all parents of dead kids talk about how extraordinary their kids were, but holy shit, this guy, um, he spoke three languages. He was just ridiculously smart and ridiculously kind and had been through a lot of, of pain. Um, he was suicidal at one point and, mm. uh, we got him some help and he got himself some help and he really came out, came around what what was he struggling with? He was lonely. He was it was hard to be Charlie Oxen. He was a brilliant. I mean, mm-hmm. he was uh one of those just kind of guys who remembers everything that anyone has ever said to him and yeah. just walking the world was uh was uh, there was so much input and he had a hard time making close relationships with people. And I think he was just lonely and sad and on his own first year of school in New York city, he was just the pits. What's it Um, like for you as a parent at that moment, knowing that that's, yeah. And how, how do you remember you got through that? I mean, we talked a lot and we got him some help. You know, we got him a, a good psychiatrist and we got him medicated. He, yeah. he needed SSRIs. And gotcha. guess what? They helped. Did they, did he they was helped depressed. Him? And yeah. and um, the meds helped a lot. And, you know, adjusting to his adult self helped a lot. And by the last year of school, he made a... a a lot of really good friends. Um, he had an incredible girlfriend. He fell in love. Hmm. And, you know, four months before he died, um, he and Izzy, like, got really intense. Hmm. And the week that we were in Utah together, he was, you know, texting with her the whole time and talking about her. And I told him about my girlfriend. And it was really beautiful. Wow. Um, he had really That's a first-time exchange where you guys are exchanging notes about yeah, your... as your, adults. Wow. Sitting around, you know, drinking scotch at the lodge. Amazing. With your kid. Amazing. It was amazing. Totally. Um, and then we were, you know, it was our sixth day there, and we were coming down from lunch on a blue run on a beautiful day. And uh, I don't know what happened, but we were all in a row, me and the three kids, and he was behind me. I don't know what happened, but he hit a sign. A trail sign and he died instantly um in some ways uh a comfort to know that he didn't suffer but uh-huh. um the next 24 hours are just uh i can't even begin to describe the trauma and um you had converted to judaism i had yeah uh, a few years before that um my wife is jewish and at the time that we got married, I considered it and then went through the whole training and then ultimately decided not to. And then 18 years later, we'd been married 22 years when we split up. Uh Um, I converted. And so I had that and that was super helpful in terms of Jews do death really well. Could you talk about that? I mean, how they do it well, because it it was so moving to me to hear when you described it originally. Yeah. I mean, there's this, let me do something. Yeah, there's this um, process of sitting shiva. Mm-hmm. So you you um, traditionally, and we did it pretty traditionally. 
there were some alterations, but the, 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 um, tradition is you, you go in your house, you cover up all the mirrors, you open up all the doors. Um, you don't change your clothes. You don't brush your teeth. You don't take a shower. You are only, uh, obliged to feel and tell stories and you sit in your house with your loved ones and people come and go. You're not allowed to answer the door. Um, people are instructed just to walk in. Hmm. People bring food and for seven days you sit with your family and you just feel shit. Wow. And you know, you tell all the stories and you look at pictures and you know, you say Kaddish, which is the mourner's prayer um, once a day. And we, you know, because I, I had split up with my wife. It was especially fraught. And because he was 20, you know, everyone I ever knew, and it feels like most of the people I didn't showed up. Wow. So it was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And, you know, the, the, the funeral, which was, they do it real fast. It's, you know, two days. Yeah. You, you put them in the ground. Wow. Um, so there's not a lot of time to sort of, get your shit together. It's, it's, and the, I think the, the, the main purpose of the Shiva is you are, um, forced to acknowledge the reality of what's happening. Um, person after person after person. So everybody who comes up to you is just reaffirming what's happened. You cannot avoid it. You can't, um, you know, my kids kind of hated it yeah, because it was so intense. Oh, that's so the opposite of what kids would want. Yeah. yeah. They wanted to run away. Right. Um, but, you know, the, I still, you know, grief is a bitch. And one of the, you know, there's these five stages of grief. And mm-hmm. the first one is denial. And, mm. you know, I still feel like he's going to walk through the door any minute. Mm. Um, I don't believe that it happened. I can't believe that it happened. Where yeah. did he go? Right. Like, I don't understand. Yeah. Um, so, but Shiva is a, a, a great process in terms of, and then like, you know, at the funeral, at, when you bury them, it's a plain pine box and you throw rocks and dirt into the, you, you, you bury them, hmm. you, you move the earth into the hole. Wow. And it is just, you know, Shoot. and then there's, you, you're, I said Kaddish for a year every yeah. day. Um, and continue to say Kaddish every week now. Um, the, the tradition is about acknowledgement. You know, yeah. Jews are just like, bear down, baby. Yeah, be this with is, this. Be with this. Um, that's the, the primary uh, message of healing that I know is just, you know, the, there's so many ways that people say the wrong thing and get it wrong. And yeah. there's this idea, there's this toxic, just fucking God awful idea that somehow you need to let them go. You know, I don't know where this came from. <laughs> Maybe the movie ghost. Mm. I think in the movie ghost, there's a thing where like, Oh, right. To where help she, him carry she, on yeah, let him go. Yeah, let him yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Like, and then that, then that's the end. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fuck that. <laughs> I mean, Anyone who's like, you know, when are you going to move on? Right. You know, I'm now in a group of parents of kids who died. And, um, you know, we talk lots about sort of uh, how we get, how we manage. Yeah. Um, and one of the guys in my group is a 
guy named Colin and his wife, uh, Gail, they lost their two teenagers in a car accident on the, they were in the car, they were driving it to Joshua tree and they got hit by a drunk driver and the two kids in the backseat died and they were, um, Ruby and Hart and they were that that was before Charlie I knew them through my temple and mm. you know they were so unbelievably open about their experience and I remember when Charlie died I was like I'm never going to be able to live up to these like superstars of grief wow. I can't believe that because <laughs> they're so good at it <laughs> um, and I'm not that good at uh. it like you know it's messy and it's irritable I mean the thing that the thing about grief is that it's like Sometimes it's crying and wallowing and not being able to move. And sometimes it's just being an asshole. Right. You're just annoyed and irritated and angry and bitter and like just not functioning. Of the nonsensical of it. Yeah. Um, it's ugly. Yeah. Well, um, what you've done is the opposite of what is suggested of letting go. But it's like, well, you, how do I build a relationship now with Charlie? How do I strengthen that? And what have you done? What? what well, you- I mean, the thing that I've wanted more than anything is to figure out how to honor him, how to make him proud, mm-hmm. how to make him alive in my life. Like the, the one thing that I cannot abide is this erasure, this mm-hmm. idea that he's gone yeah. and that um, I need for him to be in my life. And yeah. I know he's not physically here, but I, I you know, I want to talk about him. I want to, I've got his pictures up. Oh, I yeah. want to tell stories about him. Like yeah. I, I am not letting his memory go. Oh, he comes over to our house. Like, yeah. we, I mean, well, we, we at least <laughs> pretend that he does. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's actually him, yeah. but we talk to him all the time. Yeah. Um, I love that. I, but you know, the challenge with that is like, how do you do it? Like a lot of people will start a scholarship fund or they'll do the, you know, the, they'll put his name on a park bench. Right. Or, right. And none of that felt right for him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been writing about him a lot. Mm-hmm. The discovery here for yeah. me was, you know, I moved out here. Um, and a lot of the reason I moved here was just because I needed space to just feel and I wasn't getting it. And I was living two blocks from my old house hovering over my old existence and I was just oh, a wreck. I was yeah. on the like 10th floor of an apartment building and every day I thought about jumping out. Like wow. I was just like, you know, what do you live for? Right. Um, wow. So I came out here and I was like, <sighs> just wow. like I had space to just feel. And yeah. so, you know, um, I, I have a, a place with a, with room to, paint and yeah. so i started painting and at first i was painting all these crowd pictures i had just come off the civil rights book and i had done a lot of uh paintings of crowds of protesters and stuff so i thought oh, i'll just keep doing that and i loved the energy of that i loved the feeling of that and it was you know george floyd was happening and mm-hmm. it was just like i was still super energized by the movement and so I was doing that. And then there was one day I was looking out the door and there was a, a bunch of cactuses. And I thought I, the cactus heads looked like faces. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, there's a crowd outside. <laughs> so I made a painting of these cactuses as if they were a crowd of people. Mm-hmm. And then I was like off to the races. I was mm. just, oh my God, all around me, there's this energy, there's this spirit that I want to try to get. And so I started painting landscapes and I've been painting landscapes for, it's actually only a year. Yeah. The first one was last June. We're in June now. Um, and 
I've just been working at this like furious clip. I'm making two or three paintings a week. And um, at first I just was like, I was posting them to Instagram. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just doing it. um, And, you know, meanwhile, in the back of my head, I'm like, how do I honor Charlie? How do I honor Charlie? He didn't care about painting. I, I was painting all these landscapes and eventually I got onto this series of pictures of roads with signs on them and I did a picture with a uh, sign that said end and then one that said dip and then one that said stop and then one that said humps and I did this whole series of road sign pictures how recent is that the road sign within the last six months I think and um it was actually just a couple weeks ago one of my neighbors was over and looking at the work and um as we were leaving she said I heard about your son I'm so sorry. Um, someone in my family also died of a skiing accident. It's so terrible. And I was like, yeah, it's just the worst. And like, I don't know what happened. Like he hit a sign and she said, Oh, that's why you're doing the signs. Right. And I was like, I didn't put it together. I was so, I was just like, fuck. Um, I'm literally painting the thing that killed my son over and over and over again. And the end sign. Yeah. So Um, profound. So, and you know, I, I was like, oh, I kind of wish I didn't know because like now I'm a little <laughs> right, self-conscious about it. Right, um, right. I did a, I did what I think of as like a marker painting. I did a painting of a snowy hill, almost like a ski run yeah. and a sign that says watch children. I need a marker yeah. to just like indicate for myself, this is where like I figured this out, like what I'm doing. Yeah. So I did a much more explicit one. I posted it. Nobody got it. Like, oh it's so God. interesting. Cause yeah. like, it's so obvious to me now, but you, oh, it's just for you. Yeah. Um, it's just for me. Um, and I think, you know, now that I know that, and now that I'm looking at the work, I've, I just did a like open studio thing with a Ohio studio artist. And I had people come for the first time, look at my work. Yeah. And as I look at it, I can see, very clearly that all of this is in direct response to Charlie. Yeah. And I'm, there was a woman who contacted me through Instagram. She asked me to do a commission of her. She had lost her partner suddenly in a, in a surfing accident in, um, Mm. in Ventura. She asked me to do a painting of her husband out on a trail that they loved and, you know, in a landscape like I do. And turns out she's a medium and, her partner has been coming to her and talking to her. And since then she's been talking to all kinds of people. And so when I delivered the painting, she did a reading and channeled Charlie. What's that look like? I mean, she sits there and she's sort of clairvoyanty and she just sort of vibes his voice. Yeah. Um, it was intense. It was really intense. Are you the person that, that would have been open to this prior? No. Okay, so this no. is and this is born of like let's just see what's going on totally. here. I mean, I've got a feeling that she was um, of good faith. She wasn't trying to hustle me. Hmm. I think a lot of these guys are just hustlers. Oh yeah, for and sure. And they're sort of vampires who are feeding off of the like tragedy. And you know, I know that she suffered a great loss, and she was understanding, and she got a lot of Charlie. Yeah. She really did. I mean, wow. the the main message was he's fine. He's good. He's good. You know, I think that's the message of all mystics who tap into drop in the body. It's the message of a lot of people coming out of the psychedelic 
right. you know, obliteration of their minds is right. coming back going, oh, by the way, death's safe. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. Yeah. Our buddy yeah. Ram Dossi is yeah. just like, you drop your body. <laughs> yeah. Fine. It's like taking off a tight shoe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have any certainty about where he is and what's happening. I really don't. Yeah. I, I'm still just fucking devastated because I want my boy. Um, and I don't take a ton of like solace from the idea that he's at one with the universe. Cause I don't feel, I don't want, you know, that would give him up. Yeah. Yeah. I would give him up, I guess. Um, and I can't give him up. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, just, uh, he's come to me in a couple of dreams. And, you know, when I wrote his eulogy, I woke up, I had written his eulogy. This was like three days after he died. And I wrote something. And then um, in the middle of the night, I woke up and I had a conversation with him. And that became the eulogy. You know, I think I can connect with his spirit through you know, creative work. Um, I don't know if he's ever going to be just like, all right, dad, right. live your life. Like, yeah. that's, that's, <laughs> I don't know. He's, yeah. we're connected. And yeah. Maybe I don't, uh, I would be overjoyed for him. The, the, the last time I had a dream about him, um, I was in a courtroom and there was a judge who was making a ruling about me and being super harsh. Whoa. And Charlie walked in the courtroom and said, hi, dad, and walked out the other side. And I was, I woke up in just a panic because I was like, ah, 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 come back, right? right. Um, it couldn't be more on the nose, right? Like, yeah. I, you know, I'm punishing myself and he's just like appearing. He's unaffected by your judgments of yourself right. as a father. Yeah, that's a good interpretation. That's beautiful. Just like all this judgment that you have, it's I'm completely impervious to that. I'm just walking by saying hi. Hi, Dad. Anytime (laughs) you want to come back to the simplicity of this, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So that friend I mentioned, Colin, um, who lost his two kids, I mean, I think what I was trying to get at with that is that I have come to kind of understand that while what I have experienced and what my family has experienced, what my, my kids have experienced is just like this isn't supposed to happen. Yeah. You know, it's the worst nightmare yeah. of a parent, you know, his experience, Colin and his wife, Gail is so fucking awful. Like they lost both their kids. And there's another guy who his wife died of cancer. And then he was out to dinner with his two adult kids. One of whom was a lawyer. One of whom was just finishing a, a, a dance internship. And they were walking to the car and a car flipped over the, median and ran into all three of them and his two kids died in his arms wow his wife had just died and his two kids are dead and you know talking to people like that (laughs) yeah and understanding that they're getting through the day and hearing how they're doing it and you realize and then you know there's fentanyl like crazy i didn't know about fentanyl before this like yeah like four of the 10 people in this group have kids who died of fentanyl overdoses. Um, And like, I'm happy that my son was healthy and had turned a corner. I mean, his story is beautiful in its own. Like he had a great arc, right? Yeah. Like he had a beautiful arc. Yeah. Um, And 
that's great. Yeah. And also it's awful because right. what was next? Right. Right. Like that's so tragic. Mm-hmm. Um, but you quickly realize that like death is all around us. Yes. The connection between everyone who's in this boat. I'm not special. Mm. You know, Charlie's death is, you know, crazy and shouldn't have happened. And there's no reason why, but everybody's going to feel some version of this. Yeah. So like, I hope my heart has gotten bigger. My capacity for love is deeper. Yeah. And, um, you know, when shit goes down, I'm, I go towards it. Hmm. You know, I'm, I, I feel like I have a, a radar towards like greeting the horror hmm. with as much love and presence as I can. The only thing that I know that helps, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when you've got a dead kid, anytime something terrible happens to someone, you know, or someone, you know, know, they get in touch with you. And yeah. I've like had conversations with people who are going through terrible stuff. And, you know, the only thing that helps is just being with someone, yeah. right? This idea that I think of as like withness, not witness, but not trying to solve it, not trying wow, to. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, withness, withness, just being with and holding that feeling together is just being with it. Yeah, one of the kind of uh, standards of grief is that like it's not getting better. Like you don't get together and thinking like, we'll just do this thing and then we're going to all feel better. You don't feel Mm -hmm. better. You don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, I came up with this metaphor that grief is a tyrannical, absolutist, temperamental motherfucker. He's like a ruler, like an old mean king Mm. who demands that you get on your hands and knees and supplicate yourself totally. You have to just give yourself up to it and you can't do it out of like, Oh, if I do this, it'll get better. Yeah. It's not getting better. He's just like, get on your hands and knees, bitch. You're mine. Uh huh. And you do that. Yeah. And when you do it, he gets a little bored and he starts to go on his way Uh, and you get a little room and you can't do it knowing that he's going to do that. Uh You have to do it full, full on. That's right. But when you do, it doesn't get better, but you get more room. I got more room now. Wow. I have more room to move within the grief. It's not, you know, 100% of my day anymore, whereas for probably a year, that's all I was doing. I'm in constant fascination with your process. It is uncharted territory for me. I'm a parent, and I think about my own mortality and my children's mortality every day. Mm. Every day is a practice. And I do see death in life, and it is a beautiful thing. It is a beautifully haunting and devastating thing, but all of those things. And I, I, I look at your story, and I think he's doing the work. He's pioneering it for us. That's what you're in my life, to show me what that's like and how we can move through the incomprehensible. And so for that, I'm so grateful to you, ongoing and I wouldn't have wished it upon you. Well, I appreciate that, Jamie. You're a very special human and spirit. <laughs> the other people I'm in awe of are people who have lost their parents. Mm. You know, um, I think of them in the same way. 
There's so much to learn. As I say, it's coming for us all. Mm. We're, we're all getting a piece of this. <laughs> Nobody gets out of here alive. No one gets out of here alive. <laughs> yeah. We're in for it. Yeah. You know, you go from weddings and birthday parties to funerals. And, you know, this is just the cycle. Yeah. And there, you know, there are, are gifts. There's so many gifts. Yeah. Marbled in with, you know, the pain. The sorrow comes with like such sweetness. Yeah. You know, when I was saying at the, at, during the Shiva, everyone I have ever known and most of the people I didn't came to me with their hearts broken open. Yeah. And th- th- that kind of experience is just beyond. Yeah. It just changes the way you relate to people in the world. That must have been the, like so odd, like a dream that there's all these people from all these areas of your life all in one place, all sort of in a procession. Yeah. And And it's like something that you can't completely access, you know, must've been this weird sort of. Yeah. And a lot of it's super inappropriate and awful. Oh, right. People People don't know. don't know what the fuck to do. (laughs) You know, there's a woman who like hugged me and started like rubbing my chest. I felt like I got grief raped. Like it was so inappropriate. This like thirsty divorced mom who was like coming on to me hard and I was like, get off. Wow. And then, you know, people who are like, he's in a better place. Oh, right. No, he's not. My advice for people who are dealing with people who are like in serious, profound loss is the first thing is just be with them, run to them. Don't shun them. Yeah. A lot of people do that. They're scared. And yes. so they just like, I'll check in later. Right. <laughs> they, they, they perceive that, oh, they're in enough. And, and, and that's so common. And the, the two best things that people could say to me, there's really it is fuck. Yeah. You know, when someone came up to me and was just like, fuck, yeah. I was like, yeah, exactly. Right, <laughs> right. Um, or I love you. Uh-huh. Um, or, you know, sharing memories about Charlie. Like, mm. Charlie was extraordinary. This is a time that we had together. You know, just Charlie. Center Charlie. That was it's not welcome. about you. Yeah. Um, you know, the worst is like, my mom died oh, four years right. ago, and I know oh. what it's like. Nope. Don't do that. Don't. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> yeah. It's not a good look. It's not a good look. It's not cute anymore to make it about you. And, you know, even like a lot of people say there are no words. That's yeah. a thing that people say. That's wrong. Wow. Great <laughs> there, to hear. You know, that is not right. Yeah. There have to be words. Yeah. You have to talk about this shit. Yeah. Like it's happening. It yeah. is happening. And the way that we know it's happening is by talking about it. Right. Um, I can't imagine. It's the worst. Uh-huh. I can't imagine. That's basically saying, I'm not going to imagine. That's how you heard it even. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So knowing that, that that's possible that someone in your position could hear it that way. Oh, of course. Let it. I can't imagine. Your... Also, I can only imagine. Uh, That's no good. Oh, right. I can yeah. only imagine. Oh, yeah. yeah I'm not yeah. going to be no. here with you because I just can only imagine it. Not it's the like, place. Not the place. Yeah. All you say is, I love you. Mm-hmm. And this is awful or fuck. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are the great. <laughs> great. And then just be nearby. And just be nearby and, uh-huh. and, you know, hold them and get them food and help them in any way that you can. Just show up. Yeah. Um, also don't say like, if you need me, uh, just give me a call or, mm. um, I'm here if you need me. Okay. Uh-uh. Good to know. You just say, Hey, uh, let's take a walk on Tuesday. You know, y- you have to take the initiative with someone who's in trauma. It's good to know. Yeah. 
Thank you for sharing all of that. And I mean, the, the other thing to understand is that there's a big difference between trauma and grief. So someone who's dealing, like I was dealing with trauma for six months and I was just looping the circumstances of his death over mm. and over and over again. I was incredibly guilty, you know, shocked, denial, and I was in not, I, I mean, it was like a psychedelic, awful, bad trip. Part of what you're trying to do is not swim towards the wave. Like that's the advice that I was getting, which was don't deny it, feel the feelings. And so what I was doing is just feeling those feelings over and over and over again. And eventually I realized this is not making me better. I was feel I couldn't sleep. I was um, a wreck. Yeah. And with the help of the therapist and something called EMDR, which uh-huh. is um, like you hold these vibrating pebbles and you go through the experience and it releases the trauma, I realized, okay, there's trauma yeah. and then there's grief. And grief is just feeling the feelings of the loss of that person and not right. the circumstances that took them out. Right. Um, and trauma is a more active, like it's still cutting it's it's locked in your head. It's in your body. There's a an amazing book called um, "The Body Keeps the Score." Yes, right? amazing. Right. You realize that it's in your yes in your cells. Body's got to work it out. Yeah, and so even if you think you've moved beyond it, the body keeps the score. Yeah, yeah. So getting people moving is super important, and yeah. then just being sensitive to the difference between trauma and grief, and trying to move towards grief and deal with the trauma with professionals. Yeah. Right. Cause this isn't kid stuff. This yeah. is like, it's something you really need to, uh, f- focus on with some like expertise. Yeah. Maybe mushrooms, maybe <laughs> running, I love whatever how you pointed it is. Me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe mushrooms. Does anyone here like, know like, about that? I'm the ambassador of psilocybin. <laughs> Maybe MDMA. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not saying that these things exist or they're legal. I'm just saying that they're helpful. Yeah, no, I've heard. <laughs> yeah. I love you. Oh, I love you too, man. That you spent time with me. Sure. And in doing so, you're spending time with others and, and, and letting us in on your notes, the valuable notes. And I'm moved. And Thanks, I'm glad man. you're my friend. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.